Genesis. We did. We started well in Genesis last fall, and it's Christmas season, and other things have broken that up. But we are back in Genesis this morning. If you remember the last time we were in chapter four, and we were looking at the line of Cain. Cain killed his brother, and then we saw his descendants after him. And if you remember, the focus was on Lamech the seventh from Cain, the one who kind of was typical of those folks who came from Cain. And Lamech was this guy who boasted in his pride, and he was a murderer, basically. He was a man given to violence, just like his forebear, Cain. This morning, we turn back to a more friendly line, to the godly line, descending through Adam. And we're going to start in Genesis 4, verse 25. We'll read through all of chapter 5 also. I'll make some comments through the way, but we'll, we'll save most of the points for the end of the text. This may be a little choppy. It's also a genealogy, so stick with me. The genealogies are not what most of us prefer to read, but there's definitely some things to get out of this. Uh, Genesis 4, 25. This is after the death of Abel, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, which means uh, replacement or asked for. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Um, Brief comment here. Translations don't, aren't always uh, necessarily real true to the original language. When you see this, the Hebrew tends to be cryptic, but in this, this sense, uh, each person, it says, they called the name. So when, in your English version, when someone's named, it's they called the name. So Adam called the name of his son Seth. Seth called the name of his son Enosh. So when you get down to verse 26... And these ones called the name of Yahweh. Fathers called the names of sons, but then the sons turned around and called on the name of Yahweh. And this apparently is in contrast to Cain's line. When you see Cain's line and they speak or they give verbiage to who or what they are, there's this boast, there's this proud boast about violence. If someone harms me, I'll kill them. But when the sons in the line of promise speak, they call on the name of Yahweh. Also, apparently, when I read this initially, and as I've read it over the years, to call on the name of the Lord sounds like a prayer. But apparently, this is not a prayer so much as it is that they are making proclamation of the God that they know by name, by Yahweh. So they're declaring the true God to the world in which they live. Not necessarily prayer. So fathers call sons by name, and then those sons in the line of promise in contrast to Cain, they in turn turn around and call on the name of God or proclaim God. Into chapter 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them and named them man. Man there is Adam in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image and named him Seth. You see, verse 1, the author goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. Man's made in God's image and likeness. You remember God says we'll make man in our own image 
in our likeness. And then verse 3 says, Adam had children in his own image. And there's at least a couple thoughts here. One is that fathers reproduce what they are. Uh, Children are like their fathers. Children bear the image of their fathers. You may like that thought or you may not like that thought, but that's the way it is. Baby, your children are like you. They share your essential character. And, And so, of course, that's true through this line. But also, probably there's a nuance here when it says uh, Adam had a son in his own likeness according to his own image. There's a little bit of a contrast there. Remember that in Genesis 1 and 2, when Adam's created, there's no sin. And so in all the ways that God wanted him to reflect his image and likeness, he did. But post-fall, after the sin, the image of God in Adam is marred. It's defaced. It's not what it was intentionally meant to be. So when Adam reproduces children in his own image and his own likeness, they still bear the image of God, but it's a marred image. It's not the perfect representation that would have been true originally. Verse 4, the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years and he had, my New American Standard inserts the word other, it's not there, but he had sons and daughters. We imply more than the ones that are mentioned here. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. This is a, this is a key verse and it's a key thought. All the days Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And we'll bring this topic up uh, here further at the end, but And he died, you'll see, as a recurring theme here. Verse 6, Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. You get the point. Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Uh, Two things here. Enoch, obviously, is unique in this list. He's the only person, bar Elijah, that's mentioned in the Bible as living on the earth who didn't die, whose body didn't corrupt and be buried back in the ground from which it came. Only two guys mentioned in the Bible. Enoch is one. The other thing is this. When you read about each one of these guys, and he died, and he died, and he died, and you get to the one that doesn't die, that's pro- there's probably a, a point to be made there, and we'll talk a little bit about that again when we've worked our way through the text. But Enoch is unique, clearly in this list, and apart from Elijah, also in the rest of the Bible. 
Verse 25, Methuselah lived 187 years and he became the father of Lamech, a different Lamech than we saw in Cain's line. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech and he had sons and daughters. And by the way, kids, this is Methuselah is the answer to some of those Bible questions. Who is the oldest named person in the Bible? And that's Methuselah, 969 years. By the way, if you do the math, you'll see that Methuselah dies the year of the flood. I believe because he's in the line of promise, that means God withheld the flood until he died, not that he died in the flood. Verse 27, So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his, son, his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, from the ground which the Lord has cursed. This is a little unclear. We're not sure exactly what this means. But apparently Lamech thought his son Noah might be the Savior God had promised, that Noah might be that one that God had promised to come through this line through which he would provide redemption and that the curse would be ended. And Lamech, for whatever reason, thought in some way his son Noah might have been that one. Noah is a savior, of course. He is a deliverer, but, but not ultimately in the, in the sense of the curse. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. Noah was 500 years old and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You'll notice in this genealogy, Noah is the tenth descendant from creation and he's the savior in this line. He is a savior in this line. His dad thinks he's going to be a savior. And then, of course, we know it's Noah who, with his family, is saved through the flood and repeoples the earth, tenth in line from creation. This genealogy is very similar to Genesis 11 and that genealogy. And you'll also notice there that Abraham is the tenth in line from Shem, who is the first person post-flood. So in both of those genealogies, a lot of similarities, one of them being that it's the tenth person in line that's the Savior figure. And Abraham, of course, God starts a new covenant with. Well, there's a lot of living and dying in Genesis 4 and 5, and we'll talk about just a few elements of that. The first is this. Is Genesis 5, is this genealogy meant to be taken literally? That is, are these real people, they're named, are they real people? And if they're real people, did they really live as long as the text says they did? Now, in our culture and in our time, and this is not true historically in general, but in our culture and our time, many of us would probably come to Genesis 5 and assume that it can't mean what it says. That is, that it's not meant to be understood Literally, because in our culture and our time, the early chapters of Genesis, at least the first 1 through 11, would understood to be myth or hyperbola, but not to be taken literally. If you have any view of, of evolution, even if you're what's called a Christian evolutionist, it's very, very difficult. I'd say it's impossible to fit these chapters into an evolutionary model. So many of us might come to Genesis 5 and say, kind of like Genesis 1, Adam's not real, these people aren't real, etc., there's a problem with that, of course, which is the text itself. The text just doesn't seem to afford us that luxury. It's told in a straightforward manner. We're given names. We're given ages. It doesn't appear to be hyperbola or myth. 
I assume there's nothing wrong with the names and there's nothing wrong with the numbers. That is that these were real people, real father, real sons, and these were really the ages they lived. One of the reasons the Hebrew word yalad here is used instead of the term ben when it talks about the father-to-son relationship, one commentator has pointed out yalad is never used of other than a father-son relationship. Uh, Some commentators, if you're looking to create as much time as possible in the Genesis account to afford some view of evolution or the evolutionary ages, you've got to make up time that otherwise you can't find in these chapters. So one of the ways you can do that is if you say the genealogies, they're uh, either they're not literal or the names mentioned are just key links, but not all of them. So instead of 10 men here, we might say there's really a hundred generations here. And so, or there's a thousand generations. So then you start saying, well, we can wrap up about as much time as we want. The trouble with that is Yalad is not used in that sense. If you read the term Ben in other portions of the Old Testament, and it will say, uh, you remember the movie Ben-Hur, it just means the son of Hur. Judah was the son of Hur. So if you read in the other portions of the Old Testament, it might say so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. Sometimes that means literally father to son, but it can mean son, grandson, great-grandson. It at least means they're a direct descendant or they're a direct forebear, but it doesn't have to mean father to son. This term used in Genesis 5, it's father to son. It appears to be meant to be taken literally just the way it sounds. Another problem with trying to write off this passage as anything other than literal is the fact that it's used in the New Testament. Uh, When Jesus, the two names, the first and last name, Adam and Noah in this list are used by Jesus in the New Testament in the Gospels. Jesus references both men, the first and last names in this genealogy in the Gospels. But so does Paul in Romans, so do Peter and Jude in their epistles. They mention Enoch by name. So if you start trying to say we're looking at a passage that's really not meant to be taken literally, you're, you're fighting up an up, uphill battle. The reason, of course, we want to find Genesis 5 other than literal is we come in with a presupposition. We've got another view that requires us to read this as something other than literal. Uh, when Paul, this is a sort of an application or a tangent, but in Acts 26, 8, when Paul is giving a defense of his theology to King Agrippa, he says this, why is it considered incredible among you if God raises the dead? That is Paul speaking to a crowd that doesn't believe resurrection is possible. So when he talks about resurrection, they have this incredulity. They just don't buy it from the front end. So Paul says to them, why is it considered incredible among you if God raises the dead? It shouldn't be incredible. You come with a presupposition. So when I talk about resurrection, you write it off. But what's your problem? Your viewpoint, the viewpoint you're bringing to this debate is your problem. Related to the lifespans, when you look pre-flood, you've got all these guys living a long time, almost a thousand years. And then post-flood, as you look at the ages at which they die, of course, you find it tapers off very quickly. So that when you get down to Abraham's generation, you're down to about 175 years, from almost 1,000 years to just below 200 years. And, of course, after that, you see the norm, more of what you'd see today, 
Some people live up to about 120, but normally they're dying or they're living and dying, the kind of lifespans we see today. Seems to be this. The closer you get to the original creation, the less influence death exerted. Does that make sense? The closer you get to the original creation, the less influence death seems to exert. Remember that pre-sin, there wouldn't have been death at all. So if you said Adam lived a thousand years or Adam lived 500,000 years, there wouldn't have been any issue because death wouldn't be a principle at work in the world. So the closer you get to that original creation point, it seems, the less influence you see death exerting. And then after the flood, we assume that there are probably lots of influences that came to bear. Sin or the ramifications of sin, death, is taking a greater toll as it exerts its influence over time. That is, the earth, you guys know one of the principles of physics that is that things fall apart over time. And the longer period of time goes, the more of that you see, that it falls apart. And so we see that to some degree here. And probably also the earth and the atmosphere changed dramatically post-flood as well. So I assume that these are real people. They lived real lives and they really did live to be about a thousand years old. Last point on this, Isaiah 65. When Christ reigns again on the earth, he, he in contrast to no, he is the real savior figure. And when Christ rules on the earth again, and it's prophesied that he will, uh, that curse is lifted so that lifespans of a thousand years that sound incredible to us, they'll be normative in the future. So Isaiah says this in Isaiah 65 verse 20, Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. You know, today for us, if you reach a hundred, that is a, a milestone because not many of us make it. But Isaiah says a day is coming where if you die at 100, you're considered a junior, a pipsqueak. You've died in your youth. It says if you fail to reach 100, you'll be considered cursed. That is, if you die before 100, it will be as if God's judgment has fallen on you because everybody lives longer than 100. As the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will, will long enjoy the work of their hands. So again... I ask the question, as Paul did, why do we consider it incredible if men should have lived those ages? It would seem the natural thing in a certain way. The passage appears to be meant to be taken. Death was the anomaly in God's original plan, and its influence took some time to exert itself. You can't fail to notice as you go through that genealogy, the recurring theme, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's what we saw Originally, you remember in Genesis 2, God told Adam, if you eat from the tree, you'll die. And then we saw when they ate, when Adam and Eve ate, there was this initial death. And you remember biblically, primarily death is a separation, where as soon as they ate, their fellowship with God was separated because all of a sudden they don't want to see God. When he walks in the garden, they want to hide. That relationship they had was broken. There was this separation initially. Then there was a secondary death, separation, if you will, when God drove them out of the Garden of Eden. And if you remember way, way back when we talked about this, this was actually a merciful thing to do as well on God's part. It wasn't just a judgment. But it was another, uh, another way of experiencing death because now they were separated from the place that they had met God face to face. But now here, 
almost a thousand years later, this death that is for them physical beings on the earth, ultimately tangible, comes to Adam. And then it's not just the loss of fellowship with God. It's not just that I'm not in Eden anymore. It's that Adam's soul leaves his body. And Adam's body is buried in the ground from which he came, just as God said he would be. Genesis 3.19, you're going to eat bread till you return to the ground. From it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So this thing, and he died, and he died, and he died, this is just what God said would happen. And this is kind of the ultimate sense when Adam is buried in the ground. When we ask today, or when someone asks you today, why is there death in the world, or they may not phrase it that way, they might say something like, why do bad things happen? Uh, everything, if we say it's bad, it's, it's under death. And all those bad things that happen are under death, and death is in the world today because Adam sinned. A real guy and a real gal that lived in history in time and space made a decision that had real repercussions. And then, of course, that image that they had, which now embodied death, that's what they passed on to all of us. Part of that marred visage of God was death. So that, remember, death was never God's plan. But it's part of what Adam passed on. So you read in Paul, uh, in Romans 5, 14, 15, 17, death reigned from the time of Adam to Moses. Uh, the many died by trespass of the one man. By the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. Death has become the portion of us all. You know, one of the upsides of this, uh, when we're young and we know better, we think we'll live forever. But, you know, you read Genesis 10 and you realize I'm a son of Adam also and I've got a lifespan and I may be 20 now, but I'm going to be 80 tomorrow and then they're going to bury me. And if you insert your name into this genealogy just in the sense that you're a descendant of Adam, you share his image, and that means you share death, it gives a perspective to living that's helpful. If I realize I'm, I'm joining Adam, guys, one day somebody's going to bury me in the ground. If Christ doesn't come back first, all of us in this room, we share a common future. And it's going to be these bodies are going to corrupt and they're going to go back in the ground from which they were taken. And that perspective helps you live wisely. That's the truth of it. Helps us live wisely. <clears throat> Death came because of sin, and bad things happen on the earth because of death and sin. There is an exception to the rule, though, in this list, isn't there? Enoch, this is, uh, it stands out. Everybody else dies, but Enoch. So what's the deal with Enoch? Why doesn't Enoch die? The passage says this about him. He walked with God. He walked with God. Verse 22, Enoch walked with God 300 years. He had other sons and daughters Verse 24, Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. What does it mean that Enoch walked with God? Whatever it means, Enoch wasn't the only one this was true of. If you look in Genesis 6, 9, Noah walked with God. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. So when it talks about Noah and it connects this thought about walking with God, it says Noah was righteous and blameless. It attaches these thoughts to walking with God. Noah was a guy who did the right thing and wasn't given to sin. And by the way, no matter how high we praise these guys, it does not mean they were sinless. 
In other words, Enoch wasn't taken to God because he was without sin. He's a descendant of Adam. That means he's a sinner. That means he sinned. So it doesn't mean moral perfection when it says they're righteous or blameless. But the characteristic of their life was that he did the right thing and he avoided sin. That's what he was characterized by, Noah. Or in Genesis 17, 1, when God speaks to Abraham, he says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And you get two thoughts here. Walk before me. Do you know if my father's walking behind me, I know he's watching me. And this means a couple things. I'm taking my cues from dad and I know he's watching me. And so I might be a little more circumspect if I know my father's behind me watching than if I think nobody's seeing. So I think there's two thoughts here. Abraham has the thought that I'm walking before God. God sees the things I do. And God tells me to be blameless, to walk in a way that is without blame. So I add the thought that I know God's right behind me, He's with me, and He's also watching me, and He's told me something, be blameless, don't do those things you know you shouldn't be doing. And then last, in Genesis 48, 15, when Jacob blessed Joseph, he said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Jacob seems to attach another thought to this thought about walking with God, and it's this shepherd. That Abraham and Isaac walked before God as sheep before a shepherd. And Jacob says, I've had that same kind of relationship with God. I'm his sheep, and he's my shepherd. And that means it's a close walk, it's personal, it's relational, and it means I'm taking my cues from someone else. In this case, I'm taking my cues from God. So apparently, Enoch lived in fellowship with God. His life was, we assume, characterized by righteousness, blamelessness. His life would have looked something like Noah's, Abraham's, and Isaac's. And whatever the bottom line is here, it has something to do with a close, personal, intimate relationship with God, with a vital link or a vital connection to God. I think the reason that Enoch is given us in this genealogy is to remind us of this truth, that in the end, though death is the norm for the descendants of Adam because everybody else dies, Enoch is a reminder of the promise that one day death would be conquered and death is not the end for those who are in relationship with God. Adam died and his body was buried in the earth, but that was not the end for Adam and it's not the end for those who are in relationship with God. Enoch walked with God and God took him and Enoch is a promise or a reminder that death for those in relationship with God is not the end, that there's life beyond this world and the grave. Lastly, <clears throat> One of the things about genealogies, um, you can get some really boring ones. If you read Leviticus, um, maybe Deuteronomy, one of the return books, uh, Larry, what am I thinking of? Nehemiah, I think, or no, maybe it's Ezra. The front of the books have these genealogies. When I come to these genealogies, guys, I read them. And the reason, one of the reasons I read them is I believe that God wrote those guys' names down there because He wanted to honor them. 
And when I read their names, it would be like going to D.C. and seeing a war memorial. And we put that memorial there to remember these guys who did something important that we owe something to. And so when I come to these genealogies, I read every name in there, even if I'm not getting anything out of it, because I think by doing so, I'm honoring them as God wanted them to be honored. That's one thing. So you can read a genealogy. It's okay. Even if we don't get more out of it, then here are these guys and... They were important, and God honored them, and He wrote their names down. Another thing is this, though. Before you set your Bible down, after you've read a genealogy of hard-to-pronounce names, remember that especially in these, in Genesis 5 at least, Genesis 11, and the ones you read in the New Testament as well, these were specifically given to us to remind us that God was keeping a promise made in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve. These genealogies are meant to tell us God is keeping His promise. You remember He told Eve, one of your sons is going to be a Savior, and He's going to crush Satan. Satan's going to bruise His heel, but that won't be the final word. He'll crush Satan's head. He'll defeat death. And He's going to come through a line of promise. So when I read a genealogy like this, I'm reminded God is committed to keeping His promises. And that God said He would send a Savior and He's showing the links in the chain along the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. Each one of these guys is a link in the chain that produces the Savior in the end. And that's why these are so important in both Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And you remember Matthew and Luke start with genealogies for this very same reason because they wanted to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise to Eve and also, of course, the promise to Abraham and David as well. Think of this too. These guys lived a long time, thousand years. Think of this just a minute. Put this in your context. If you lived a thousand years, if God gave you a thousand years on the earth, what would you do? I'm not thinking of TV. You'd outrun the sitcoms or whatever. If you had a thousand years to live on the earth, what would you do? And if you look back after a thousand years, what would you look back and say, these were the highlights of my thousand-year life? What would your highlights be? When you look back, what would you say, these were the most important things in my life that I did? What would they be? Think about that for just a minute. thousand years, look back. What would be the most important things I could do if if God gave me that kind of lifespan on the earth? What would be the most important things we could do? And then come back into Genesis 5 and ask yourself this question, what else did these guys do? Uh, Actually, this is interesting too. You know, when you read the descendants of Cain, you're given more information about what they did. That's striking. Uh, What did Cain's descendants do? Uh, There were some musicians. There were some metal workers. There were some shepherds. There's some vocational aspects given. None here. None at all. What's the deal? Did they build cities like Cain and his descendants did? Did they start empires? Were they rich and famous, which is our standard of success today? You've got to wonder, man, what else? They lived a long time. What else did they do? What did their life look like? God doesn't tell us, so we just don't know. But this is what's striking to me about it. In God's book, the most important element of their centuries-long lives was that they knew God, the Creator, 
and they were used by him to preserve a line of men and women who knew him, who walked with him, and by whom he would provide the Savior to the world. When God looks back and records their name, that's the only thing he thinks that's worth writing down. Whatever else they did, it's like it's history anyway. It's gone. It's over. What happened to the cities that Cain's descendants built? The flood wiped them all away. They're gone. How many descendants on the earth does Cain have? None. All God tells us is that they had a son and that they were in the line of promise. This is meaningful for me. If you're a parent and you do nothing more, and I say it not in a minimalistic way, but if you're a parent and you do nothing more than raise your kids to know Christ and call on Christ, you stand in the ranks of Enosh and Seth and Kenan and Methuselah. That's pretty good company. That's all the scripture records of their lifetime. They knew God and they passed that knowledge on to the ones that they could. That's all they did. You know, this brings my life down to a pretty simple level. Uh, I don't have to be rich and famous. I don't have to found cities. I don't have to make a lot of money. I can be successful in God's book if I walk with Him, if I know Him personally, and if to the degree that I'm able, I make Him known to others. I don't even have to be a parent for this to be true on. You go back to Enoch. What did Enoch do? He apparently, like Enoch, called on the name of the Lord. He proclaimed the name of the true and living God. That's all he did. You and I can do that today. Our names could be recorded in a genealogy just like these guys for the very same reasons. We don't have to be spectacularly famous or successful by any worldly standard. If we know God and are in a personal relationship with Him, we're like Enoch. Death is not the end of our story. And our names could be written with these guys, that they knew God and they passed on that knowledge to the ones they had influence over. This gives me hope. Questions as we finish here. Is your name in the genealogical table being written today? That is, the, the line that produced Christ, it came and went. But you know there's such a thing as the Lamb's Book of Life, Revelation talks about. And if you know Christ, your name's in that book, that genealogy, as it were. Where is your name recorded today? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know Christ? Is your name in that book? That's where you want it. If you haven't, trust Him. If you know Christ, are you walking with God? Is that characteristic of your life and mine? Is our life characterized by righteousness? And guys, we live in a polluted world. We get dirty. You've got to be proactive about this. It's what we watch. It's what we say. It's what we do. Is your life and mine characterized by righteousness? That's part of what walking with God apparently looks like. Are we like sheep taking a shepherd's direction for our life? Is there's that sense of intimacy and dependence on God for direction? 
do we stand in the ranks of Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Isaac, and those whose lives are marked out by their relationship with God? If people don't know anything else about you, what do they know? Do they know that you call on God? Do they know you belong to Christ? Is that characteristic of your life and mine? Are we calling on God? Are we making Him known to our children? If you don't start any, if you're a parent, don't worry about the pygmies in Africa. Don't worry about the 1040 window. Do your kids know Christ? Start at home. Do your kids know Christ? Are we telling our friends and neighbors, the people we have relationship and influence with, about Christ? We're all called to be witnesses. We may not all be gifted as evangelists. I don't say that we are. I'm not. But I share Christ with everybody I can. I haven't seen much fruit over that over the years. But people who know me know I'm a Christian. I try and be sensible about that. I don't mean beating people over the head. I I don't mean being obnoxious. But I do mean, have you told others? Have you called on the name? Do they know who you belong to? Have you made Christ known to those you know and influence? I want to close. I don't know if this will come across as a tangent, but I was so struck by this. thinking about names and reputations and where life goes and what it throws you. We watched the movie Elizabeth, the Golden Age in the last uh, week or so. One of the characters in that movie and and true historical figure was Sir Walter Raleigh. And uh, it was an important guy at an important time in English history. And he was an adventurer. He sailed the seas. He uh, explored parts of South America. He founded a city like those in Genesis. Uh, we call it the lost city today they, on Roanoke. But he founded a city. He was knighted. He was Queen Elizabeth's favorite. He was the captain of her guard. He was by many levels or ways we look at life, he was very successful. But there was another side to Sir Walter Raleigh. Do you know how his life ended? The last 13 years of his life, he was imprisoned. When Elizabeth's heir, King James of the King James Bible, came on the scene. He accused Raleigh of trees and he locked him up for the last 13 years of his life, after which he was beheaded. That was the end of Sir Walter Raleigh's life. But he left some poetry behind, and one of the poems he left was found in his Bible. And this is what he said. I'm just thinking about time, life, the life we have on the earth, and what's our hope in the end. Even such is time which takes in trust our youth, our joys, and all we have, and pays us naught but age and dust, which in the dark and silent grave, when we have wandered all our ways, shuts up the story of our days. And from which grave and earth and dust, the Lord shall raise me up, I trust. Walter Raleigh was a guy of significance and importance. But you know, I didn't know that this was his perspective on life and death. But you know, in God's book, that's all that matters. He knew God and he'd called on God's name. He knew Christ and then he had made Christ known. Let's pray. Lord, I think of Mary and Martha big family gathering and much to do and uh, Martha consumed by uh, so much and Mary sitting at your feet. And Lord, we live 
lives of uh, hectic schedules, breakneck speed. We search for meaning and affluence. And there's really only one thing that matters, one thing at the end of the day that counts, and that is, do we know you? Do we know you? Do we have life in your name? Father, help us to exercise the kind of wisdom that lets us see life in perspective, that at the end of the day, knowing you and introducing you to others is all that really counts. Father, I pray for each one of us here that if our bodies are laid down in the dust of this earth or if we meet Christ face to face in the air, that you will look back over our life and you will be able to say, well done, we accomplished the things that you considered important. Help us to live life, Lord, wisely, heirs of Adam who are now connected to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.